if you have a cock ring on and you cock slap somebody is like having brass knuckles on. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Pillow Talk, the daily's podcast about sex, dating, and all that's in between. I'm your host, Chrissy McManigal. So this is a momentous episode because we are doing a shakedown of our current show's format. So for these past three episodes, I have been your host and producer. However, as a heterosexual female, there's only so much that I can actually provide to my audiences. So today, I'm very excited to introduce my new host, Zachary Bonzer. Hi, I'm Zachary Bonzer. I'm a student at the University of Washington, and I will be the new host of this sex podcast because I provide the male insight into sex. Which is kind of perfect because today's episode is misconceptions about sex. So now we have two male opinions here, actually. Joining us today is Darian Showquest. So do you want to start us off, Zach? So I guess we should just get a background as to our resumes here. Our resumes, uh, our sexual resumes. So I guess we can start with how long, how far back does your sexual history go? How often was it, et cetera, that brought you to this moment? Do we need references? Because not all of them talk to me still. That's all right. Uh, Okay, so sexual resumes. So I guess mine goes back. The first time I had sex, I was 15 years old. Uh, Yeah, Memorial Day weekend, I was 15 years old. I remember that. And then with my partner, we dated for three more years after that. If we were to have sex, it'd be maybe once a week, more like three times a month. Before he left for college, we were having a lot more sex. It was more frequent because he was leaving and we kind of both felt that having more sex was appropriate. I went into my second long-term relationship after that and he was more interested, he was interested in having a lot more sex than I was expecting. He thought that having sex four to five times a week was normal, not including the weekends. So how much do you prefer to have sex then? <laughs> okay, so I do masturbate every single day. I do have a decent amount of libido. However, having sex... I feel like that's a process. See, for him, he lasted two and a half hours each time. That was exhausting, and I, it hurt to walk most days because two and a half hours is too long Yeah. with no breaks. And so, yeah, I've been in a dry spell for about seven months now. Ooh, fun. Craigslist. <laughs> that's just a bad, bad suggestion. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. So did you find that you were having, in your first relationship, was there an equal amount of like wanting to have sex? Yes, And yes. then in your second, his sex drive was... I think so. So in the, my first long-term relationship, we were both really busy. He was an athlete, and then I was really busy getting ready for school and stuff. I was very committed to my academics. For us, we were so tight for time that whenever we could have sex, we really enjoyed it because we never felt pressured into having sex. It was just like when we could. And with the second relationship, he, because he and I were at the same school, we, had, we spent a lot more time together. We were together every single day and so because of that when the person's there all the time in your face i feel less sexual i, I, I want to have sex yes yeah. I, I think sex when it becomes a chore is a vicious cycle that just makes it less desirable and less desirable no, it makes it worse each time yeah okay so we've talked a lot about christine's resume here we'll move on to my resume because i'm the co-host and then we'll get to the guest's resume i'm in a vaguely similar boat as christine here I had one long-term committed relationship that had a very healthy sex life up until the end. So it allowed me to gain and garner a lot of experience because I had lost my virginity to this person. So going, do, doing that, having, a, having a, a long relationship out of a person, you, lo- you lose your virginity because it creates a, a weird sort of emotional dynamic that not a lot of people get. I can agree with that, um, definitely. And, and then after that had happened, I just had not been very sexually active, and then it started a dry spell that has brought me to here. So, How long is your dry spell? 
Almost a year? It's been a year since you had sex? Yeah. Yeah, it's been a year. It's been a year since I've had good sex. Well, I'll say yeah, that. yeah. The, the thing is, we're, we're on a podcast uh, about sex, and this specific topic is misconceptions about sex. And I guess one of the big main misconceptions is that sex isn't very emotional for guys. I'm not in the way of just trying to pleasure myself by putting my penis into random uh, women I can find. I don't I don't use Tinder. I don't browse the Craigslist forums. Right, Craigslist is, is emotionless. Let's just yeah, yeah. So just for me... Sex is still a very interpersonal, emotional thing. So interesting. I I hold it off very often and for as almost as long as possible. And then we'll move on to Darian's resume. I uh, I first had sex when I was fifteen, and I think a big misconception that led me to that was that everyone around me was having tons and tons of sex. I think that's just because I'm a very naive person. I believed all the boys in my classes who would say like I've had sex with this many people and these many women, and I. Everybody lies. Everybody lesson lies. number one. Yeah. And that's why I thought that I was really late to the game at 15. And, you know, now that you're a little bit older, you look back and go, that's crazy. But I had sex when I was 15 with a, uh, a family friend, actually. And it was something we were both curious about, and she was 16 at the time. And so from there, I was just confronted with how strange sex was. And there was no real rule book, because you can totally Google sex, and you can, like, read about sex but most people, because of the lack of a dialogue, just won't go into detail about all the little things that make sex really important. And so ever since I was 15, I've had anywhere from like 15 to 18 partners, I think. And the one thing that I found like, like uniformly is that having sex with someone is a lot like talking to them and that there's some like consistent themes throughout all the conversation, presets for interaction. But by and large, it's completely unique to everyone. So I think the biggest misconception is that there's a way it should go. Yeah, so you you have the most extensive resume out of all the people in yes, the room. So I've I think had, that's going to provide a good uh, You said foil. you have 15 to 16 sexual partners? Uh, like 15 to 18. I could actually like think closely about it. And that's not... Uh, I grew up in a very... Where do you find these women? Because I'm assuming they're, they weren't all necessarily committed relationships. So for me, going to parties or going out to coffee or all of the things I used to do were really roundabout ways of meeting women. And I think that it's a big part of romantic culture on the male side to present women as almost like solutions. Like if you're unhappy, fall in love. If you're feeling depleted in your work, fall in love. Um, if you need color in your life, fall in love. And so watching all this 500 Days of Summer or Groundhog Day or all these really emotionally heavy movies, I, I just started projecting the girl I wanted into every girl I met. And when I spoke to them like that, like, oh my God, you're the most beautiful person I've ever seen. Um, you're like medicine, like, like all these, these really romantically intense emotional statements appeal to women. And so while the sexual encounters didn't always result in a relationship, for the period of time that we were intimate was like, it was like falling in love. It was a very emotional, intuitive experience. They sound like they were very powerful short bursts of romance which could lead to the adage of the brightest candles burn the quickest as a foil i have only had two sexual partners so there's a obviously a large disconnect there which is going to add to the conversation later yeah i think the more sex that i've had the more i'm starting to realize that sex is important in the in a relationship in the same way that like any habit is important 
And so if it's something that you don't really have a system for, whether it's like intuitive or planned out or contracted of when you should have sex and how you should be having sex, I think that it, it really does have the potential to, to be disorienting and to become unpleasant because I think what we look for in a partner is consistency. And if every time you're having sex with someone, you don't know how it's gonna go, or there are things you don't want to happen, or the things you think should be happening that aren't happening, I think you become quickly dissatisfied. Back on the topic of misconceptions, when you're intimate with another person on that level, the most important thing to realize is that you deserve to enjoy this just as much as they do. And there's no way it should go other than that both of you are satisfied. And so I think the biggest problem with those misconceptions is people don't actually talk about them. You know, sex happens and something upsets you and then after it's over, you're like, you know what? I didn't like that, but I don't feel comfortable enough talking about this because oftentimes it feels, you know, selfish. I can agree with that. I've had more incidents where I've had bad sex and that was just my entire second long-term relationship. Every single time we had sex was actually bad sex. I couldn't bring myself to tell him that because my goal was to make sure that he felt emotionally comfortable because I knew that he had really fragile masculinity that he had to feel like he that he had done a great job and so I spent that entire time worrying about him when you bring a really good point I should have been worrying about both of us I didn't focus on how unsatisfied I was and I should have because if I focused on myself even just a, remotely a little bit the relationship would have been so much healthier in the long run we only lasted about eight months and to some people that's a long time to me it's a very short amount of time I think that a lot of that bad sex, good sex, not having that communication stems from the way heterosexual relationships and sex is sort of pushed upon people at a young age, especially with mature video games. I think, honestly, of God of War, because you play this really souped up masculine kind of person killing machine, but like occasionally they, there would be these little sex scenes in the game, and I, I'm thinking of the PlayStation Portable version of the game, where it was always like multiple women in the bathtub and that you were just some sex god that was like making the candle on the bedside rock um, for multiple people. But like young people playing those kind of games, young people absorbing the media of like these hyper intense, super satisfying um, sexual encounters with women without even having any oral go on is I think leading to a lot of the problems people have when they're first developing their sexual attitudes. It's um, media in all forms. You use video games as an example. Um, movies are a great example as well. You see foreplay. They have to use foreplay because you can't necessarily show that much sex in even a rated R movie. So you have a bunch of foreplay going on, which is correct. You, there usually is foreplay. Then you have the sex scene. They never have these scenes where the girl doesn't finish and then the guy helps her out afterwards, after he's done. They always either finish at the same time or she just magically comes before he does. I think that that's a really, 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 really important misconception is oral sex. I dated a girl. The first long-term, consistent, happy sex I ever had was with a girl for about a year and a half. Pretty soon in this relationship, she established that if I was going to finish, so was she, because it's about equality. And we reached that in different ways, but it's about equality. And I was really upset because I had not been presented that in media. How I had not you? been shown. I was 17. 17, okay. And I was just really upset because I was like, this makes it transactional, and this is stupid. And then the more I did it, and I saw how good it made her feel, the more excited she got to make me feel good. And so we would break up, and a few partners later, I, um, I had an encounter with a very lovely girl, and she called me the, like, the next morning at like 9 a.m. And she's like, let's get coffee, let's go on a date, like, let's hang out more. When I asked her about it later, I was like, how did you know so quickly that you liked me? And she said, it's because you went down on me. And no guys do that. 
And the, the, the idea that you cared about my happiness was so profound. It was like, I need to hold on to this because I guess, and this is like, I'm, I'm not talking to lots of guys about the oral sex they give. So it's, I just didn't know that this was something that guys didn't do. I thought most girls said, hey, this is what's happening. Yeah, it's actually really interesting because in my mind, psychologically, sex is, includes oral. Like, in, in the same way that lesbians can have sex, but most of the time it's oral, it's foreplay, it's not penetrative. The vast majority of people think that sex explicitly is defined as whenever penetration is going on. But I okay. think that if there was a more broader idea around sex that includes the before, the after, any oral that's going on, then it would make people more comfortable with the idea of just giving each other pleasure, I guess. But you also can do a coin flip and then focus on the other side. So for Darian, for you, it, you were doing it because you want to make sure that she was satisfied and you wanted to make her feel good. Can't you also make the argument that for some men, they give head because for them, like giving head, like it makes them feel good about themselves. Maybe I have a pretty like cynical view about things, but when a guy goes down on me, I have this whole idea that he's not doing it for me, it's to, he's doing it for himself. It's like the saying, nice guys finish last. I don't believe that saying because all the true nice guys are in relationships. The remaining nice guys are these other guys who think that portraying is nice. They will end up in fantastic relationships and that women will want them. When a guy goes down on me, I think he's doing it because it makes him the knight on the shining white horse in my mind. But when he does it, he now thinks that he's a better man for it. And that afterwards, it's good karma because eventually I'll go down on him out of gratitude. I, um, I think a lot of men do see that kind of transaction of like, I'm going to do this, it makes me look good, and then she'll like me more and then she'll go down on me. I think that's an example of doing maybe the right things for the wrong reasons, and that's gonna come back to bite you, because the type of person who sees that act of sex as transactional probably sees a lot of other things in the relationship as transactional. You know, tit for tat, eye for an eye, we need to, to make sure that we're, we're, we're keeping tabs and keeping pace. When I think that like a healthy sex relationship is really based on wanting to satisfy the other person, because that makes you feel good, and then trusting them to want to satisfy you in all those same ways. And so it's not so much transactional, because when it's transactional, the real danger is a lack of exploration. You do the same things over and over again. Hmm. Sex is a process. And while we need the consistency of like insects that says, these are the things that I like, these are the things I'm comfortable with, doing the same thing every time is just boring. And so you, you need to like detach yourself from the transactions and just focus on how to make each other feel good. Because your whole sexual life, you're going to find out that you like different things. And I think the, like another big misconception about sex is that you are suddenly like what you like. So I want to touch on that um, level of experimentation you may have alluded to in that if you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, it can get boring. In what ways in your own personal life, you know, going back to your resume, uh, how, how far have you gone in trying to experiment in those long-term sexual relationships you've had? And, and in what ways do you think that might reflect on the average person who's having sexual experiences? So usually, I think it is like, of a, a young man, it is the predisposition to think of yourself as developed at every stage. We're always developing, but we always have this idea in our heads that we figured it out and that we've got it. And so for the longest time, whenever someone was like, hey, do you want to try this? Do you want to experiment with this? I always thought to myself, nope, I like what I like, not doing that. And then the older I get, the more I'm seeing that there's an infinite number of things I could like, I just have to try them. And I think the important thing to remember is that if someone wants to do something to you or with you, and they're thinking about it because they're going to enjoy it, it's something to look at and to consider. But the most satisfying sexual experimentation comes from when someone just wants to make you feel good. 
because they really just want to improve your experience. And so those are the things that really stick with you because this person knows you intimately and is like, how can I make them feel good? Like pegging. Exactly. A lot of people, a lot of men see that, that pegging is a sign of like homosexuality. And so like their self-worth can be degraded by that. But the truth is, is that um, it is the heterosexual urge to want to have sex with a woman. And like Zach said, it doesn't necessarily have to be penetrative in the male to female sense. And so like a big misconception is that if you put something in your butt, you're gay. And I think you saw that with the Kanye tweets and how that damaged his self-esteem and his image in society. Is that's, that's a very common misconception. But isn't it slightly more accepted now, all this time later? Because I'll make comments about it. I would say it's more accepted on places like the University of Washington. However, there's large swaths of the developed world that still freely use being homosexual as sort of a life insult. That is true. We are kind of in our own little bubble at the moment. I wouldn't say a bubble. I'd just say we're far more densely populated. We're more willing to mentally experiment outside of what we grew up in and tradition. And we're far less susceptible to the opinions of peers when there are simply so many of them when you live in these urban centers. When you go to a small town high school with, you know, 20,000 people. Like you um, did? Yeah, well, Spokane has a quarter of a million people, so it's actually quite large, even though they try as hard as they can to retain a sort of small town feel about it. But yeah, when you, when you know everybody and you know your neighbor, you live a certain way, and if you deviate outside that norms, especially religiously when it comes to homosexuality, then, you know, the ire of the devil is out to get you for these people. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that no one really talks about it, that we all have these norms and understanding of how sex work. They're influenced by the games and the books and the movies. And so if you privately think, like, I want to try this thing or I like this thing, your first instinct is to think, well, I'm weird. I'm the only one thinking this. I shouldn't explore it because it's dangerous. I shouldn't look into it more because it'll end badly for me. And I think that, that, is, that that's definitely a social process. I think you're looking at what everyone else is doing and you're assuming that's the norm instead of like really reading into what everyone else isn't telling you. Yeah, one of the most interesting things about being on a college campus is the readiness to talk to one another, um, especially socially. If you're, if you're in Greek life, if you're living in a dormitory, you just start hearing things in the hallways, you talk with oh, your roommates. But the thing is like, you hear things and half of what we hear, it's like high school still, even though we're in college, half of what you hear is usually incorrect. That's true, but because people are from so many different places, you start hearing things you haven't heard before. And with the advent of the internet, and places like University of Washington being a tech school, I can definitely understand how a lot of the misconceptions about sex are being eroded on these very liberal campuses. Well, you have two different, you're bring, we're, we're talking about two different things. So you're talking about is like having, bringing forth new ideas. For me, I'm talking about how much sex we actually have at UW. Because they're, they're two different things. Yes, people are more willing to experiment. There is more variety in sexuality at UW. But how much of us actually are having sex? You and me, we're college students at UW. How I much sex are we having? I think that there's less sex going on at the University of Washington than WSU. But what I'm trying to say is that everyone assumes that college kids are just horny bastards and everyone's having sex. Not all of us are having that much sex. Most of us aren't having sex every single night or have or switching partners all the time. Most of us are still trying to figure out how to even date and talk to people to begin with. I think... I think it's a big topic. I think sex means a lot of different things to lots of people. I think the most important thing to focus on is that most people don't talk about their sex life. Yes, this is very true. And that's because we stigmatized people who discuss their sex life openly. We make that like part of their identity in our minds. People who are sexually open or even just transgendered are immediately like the, we categorize them in our brain as sexual entities. 
I'm because there. it's for us, it's like they're airing their dirty laundry. Yeah, it, well, it's not even airing their dirty laundry, but we assume that that's like a hobby, and we assume so much about them because of their eagerness to talk about, discuss, or have sex. And I think that sex is, a, is an aspect of everyone, and because so few people talk about it, no one wants to. I do think it's interesting that you bring up transgender individuals because in a lot of people's minds, uh, the general consensus of the anti-LGBT people often are encapsulating the entire lives of these fully fleshed out human being individuals into their sexuality preferences and what they identify as with genitalia. You know, yeah. the purpose of genitalia is sex and reproduction, so. Well, it says a lot more about the people sexualizing them than it does about people who are transgendered. Because I think because of our massive porn consumption, so much of sex to Americans today is about the, the visual aspects, what we see. And if you look at like transgender individuals, whether they're trans men or trans women, what you get are combinations of qualities. Like we are obsessed with penises because of porn cinematography for the past 80 years. I think we've been obsessed with penises for far longer for than that. For a very long time, that's true. Like the, sorry. The human mind does love to tie everything back to, at least the male mind likes to tie everything back to a penis. But we're also obsessed with breasts. And so, like, the male frame of vision is, I like to see penises, I like to see breasts. And so when we see someone with both, we immediately categorize them both as unique and hypersexual. And you look at transgendered men, there's a huge plethora of gay men and women who watch porn specific to transgender men because they see the muscles that they're visualized and sexualized and socialized to be attracted to with the, the vagina that they're familiar with. And you see lots of, well, vaginas in, um, in art by women and architecture. And so I think that it's, it's a mix of our ego and, and like what we're socialized to be attracted to. Yeah, I think that the conversation around how transgendered people are, are viewed by the general public whether or not they are actually sexualized people. I think that's a conversation that might be better with a transgender individual to actually tell us about the misconceptions yes. that they experience. So it might do well to move on a little bit past this idea. And I, I just want to... Uh, yeah, I think, not, not to focus on transgenders, but to use them as a microcosm, what we see in our pornography and our taste doesn't always reflect into our own sexual activities. Because, this is very true. Yeah, pornography is visual. I mean, most straight women in America watch lesbian porn because there's, well, two vaginas. And So for me, as, some, as somebody who has consumed an intense amount of lesbian porn, despite... Okay, so people assume that heterosexual women don't consume any form of gay porn. We do. We love it because it's so different. But I don't watch lesbian porn because of vaginas. It's not because I think vaginas are gorgeous. It's because, for me, it provides something a little more tangible and real. We understand our bodies really well. We can, le we can learn more, but right off the bat, we understand how things work under the hood. And don't laugh, okay? I can hear you laughing. It makes me, like, chuckle. Under the hood was a really good line. I'm sorry. Anyways, so we know how things work under the hood. So when we watch lesbian porn, we're able to relate to it a little more. We can assume that it's more real, that what these women actually are providing each other pleasure, etc. There's more emphasis on female pleasure. Yes, which is why I just love women on women scenes, because when I watch a guy and a girl on porn, it's terrible. Nothing that happens in heterosexual porn scenes is ever really what happens in my own sexual life. I can't relate to it. I don't enjoy it. I don't have old men jackhammering me and then I just come like magically. That doesn't happen. You know, I need foreplay, I need oral, I need more stimulation in all forms besides just like some sad dick like coming in and out of me. Sad penises are the worst. 
Yeah, also, I, d I can't relate to those old men. Specifically... You can? No, I can't. Because oh. I'm ni neither am I not an old man, but additionally, I am not able to find pleasure in just, like, the, the complete meat sack thing that we see on pornographic. So you feel uncomfortable scene. just doing, like, what they would do. Yeah, I can't, I can't stand regular, premium, like, high-budget heterosexual porn for that exact reason. It's awful. It has nothing to do with sex. It's so, it's, it's scary to me because it's like pop music in the sense that it is crafted really well to like stimulate, interest me, and pull me towards it. But while I digest it, it's so empty. And there's nothing there that I, I'm actually yearning for when you look for a sexually stimulating experience. For me, as a girl, I usually do assume that that's the kind of porn you guys watch. So what do you watch then, Darian? Provide me a little what picture. Do, oh, God. Since that doesn't interest you, Sorry. what does usually interest you on in porn, if you watch porn? A lot of my past partners, um, a lot of the women past partners, have been really kind of obsessed with a male patriarch figure dominating them. Is this because it might counter your figure in general? Well, the thing is, is it's so not me. Like, you could probably hear this through the mic. I'm really effeminate and, like, boyish. And so I think that it was definitely their emotional attraction to that quality of me. But in, like sexually, they wanted someone who was more dominating. They wanted someone who was more selfish. They wanted someone who was more like, like intense. And so I tried watching that pornography to make me like it more, and it just made me really sad. It made you sad it, seeing men commanding other women? Yeah, it made me really sad. Cause I think men are so awful to women all the time that I just it just made me feel so bad. I was like, is this what we get off on? And you know, so, I don't know what you guys get off on, but I know a lot of my female friends I grew up in Seattle, all of my female friends are very powerful women. They know what they want, they don't take shit from anybody, but when they have sex, they love getting choked, cock-slapped, yeah. abused. The more I did it, I was, it was something <laughs> I liked, but it wasn't my favorite thing in the world. I think a lot of sexuality for me has been that way. I think there was this one day, for some reason, I really wanted to watch big, beautiful women pornography. And I did, and then it was a really great experience until I came. And then I was just like, this is so gross. Is this really who I am? Is this like, do I like this? And then upon like, it you took time. You were fine until you were like sad and cold and covered in your own jizz. In my own jizz. And then I was like, what am I, what am I attracted to? And then I realized that like, I've only ever done that like twice. It was totally like a craving, the same way I have craving for like certain types of ice cream or burritos. And that, that the things I more consistently came back to were the things I liked the most. I try as hard as I can to not consume as much pornography as my genitals would have me do. Um, don't um, you watch every night? Yes, I do. And that is, that is holding back. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I will also do That's holding back. Like, what today is holding back. <laughs> because I think one of the worst experiences in the world is when your screen goes dark and you can see your reflection. <laughs> And, like, you just, you, just, you, you feel dead inside in that Yeah, it's, it's awful. And that's not the best time to think about sex. But to answer your question, the types of porn I, I started liking were when I met women who were very laissez-faire and submissive in the relationship. But while we were having sex, they were more, like, forceful and dominant. Yeah, and it's a very, it's a very specific thing. Because I don't want to be whipped, and I don't want stuff in my butt. Because I, I know I don't like those things. You've tried pegging. I have not tried pegging. Then how do you not know? Uh, a girl tried to put her finger in my butt, and I was like, you know, not. this just makes me panic and feel weird, and I feel dominated to an extent that is not comfortable for me. There's nothing wrong with it inherently, but I think I don't want the power dynamic in a sexual relationship to go that far. 
Yeah, I think it's like when you have a penis, you enter somebody, but your entire body is still like relatively intact. But mm -hmm. if you're like operating with holes, you know, you're being entered. Like something, is, something is going inside of something you. Something else so, is inside. So I, I know how sex works. I know, I know. But like, it sounds so rudimentary. But I think it could speak to broad swaths of the psychological experience if, of sex if, between heterosexual couples. If monkeys can have sex, of course it has to be simple. Yes, sex is actually very simple. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just mean the whole idea of losing your body body's agency when you're a woman in sex might have a lot to do with the submissive nature of people who are otherwise appearing uh, strong-willed on the outside. Hmm, okay. Interesting way to put it. I never thought about that. Because I never of asked- Of course, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. So. I understand. And I never really had the balls to ask my friend, why do you look in cock slept as hard as he can? Yeah, I don't think they're like, <laughs> there are definitely reasons for them. I don't think we'll ever know all of them. I don't think all of them are actually that important. But I think understanding what you like and then understanding the things that your partner likes and finding common ground there. If you have a cock ring on and you cock slap somebody, it's like having brass knuckles on. <laughs> Shut up. Don't be a dick. <laughs> Which is what this podcast could always devolve into, yeah. Did you have any thoughts on the matter with- About brass knuckles for your dick? No, 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 no. Did you have any thoughts on the matter of pornographic consumption? I think it's a great segue for boys to get more in tune with handling their junk, being more comfortable with the idea of sex, and maybe looking up other things that they might be interested in outside of their current relationship. The problem with it is that we have put porn on a pedestal and we haven't moved away from that. Young high school boys, they watch porn, that's their first sexual experience, themselves playing with their dick watching porn. Like that's the first thing that happens. Maybe eventually you'll slowly move over yourself into a relationship. If you're lucky, you'll lose your, your virginity, etc. And then when you do lose your virginity, the problem is, is that the only experience you have is watching porn, and then you have to apply it. And the problem is, high school boys taking what they, whatever they have in their arsenal, and applying it to losing their virginity. So guys will try and like play it off like a porn scene. I don't know if it's because they're nervous, and that's like, it's like a persona that they have to play in order for them to be able to perform, or it's just because they think that's normal. Yeah, I think if you had a person that only grew up watching anime, right? Oh my god, I have so much to say about that, but Yeah, if you had a person that grew up only watching anime and cartoons and he thought that's how people act and you introduced him to like, like, hey, can you go make a film for us? Like, like I need you to direct a crime drama between these three people, we don't know who's the murderer, right? And I, it needs to be noir, it's set in Chicago. Like, we're gonna get this done and I need you to do it. It would look like an anime, so. I met somebody at UW, the only porn he's ever watched, like he's not touched any other kind of categories, he's only consumed hentai. It's the only thing he's ever watched. He watches so much anime every single day. He cannot speak to women or have a relationship because, and he's talked to me about this, and has admitted that his infatuation with hentai has created this issue for him where normal women in today's, like normal real women no longer appeal to him. He does not find anyone attractive. I prayed myself in my underwear, long story. I was in my underwear in front of him. Like I am like, whatever. I was not sexualized. I was totally comfortable. I felt like I had my clothes on because he looked at me like a normal person because I'm not what he's into. He's into only hentai. Which is a really weird dichotomy that he looked like you as a normal person because apparently he's not looking at women like they're normal people. Like when he steps out into the real world, his sexual mindset is that the normal way to act is the not even talking to girls that you usually see in anime and hentai that like three scenes later are being ramrodded. So like... I wouldn't, I haven't seen, seen hentai so I couldn't comment. It's a really dark path to go down, but I'm a huge fan of at least having background knowledge. So if okay. you, you should probably check it out sometime. 
I, I really watched and enjoyed hentai when I was younger because I watched lots of anime. And I think if you're exposed to anime, your predisposition is to sexualize that. I think that's why Rule 34 is there is because a lot of people are exposed to different forms of media and then their subconscious sexualizes it. I think that in our society, it's really intensely interwoven between the power dynamics between different types of people and the types of people that like affect our self-esteem and self-worth. And I think that naturally we sexualize those things. Like those same power dynamics carry over. Those same obsessions with nuances in society carry over. And I think it's like hentai is a great place to start because it, it definitely originates from people who watch a lot of anime and start to associate with those characters and then sexualize them. And the thing about that is anime, there are so many different kinds of anime and some of it, you can get like very clean anime and I forgot, I don't know the names. I used to know all the, all the subcategories. Spirited Away and like that, that, Your Name. Your Name's fantastic. You know, it's great, but there, those, are, those are animes where the, the, like, the women are hypersexualized. Um, in the mid it depends on the theme and the maker, basically. Yeah, if, if we're talking about serialized anime, then I guess a lot of the categories broadly fall under, I think, like four. And you have, you have like the, the fantasy magic action animes. You have the down-to-earth real life, but with awkward relationships, male-female dynamic animes. You have etchies and you have hentais. Etchy, that's the one I can think about, yeah. Yeah. That's like almost hentai, but not. But it's I more... think the, the hentai and the etchy were something that developed from the hentai. I well, think, I'm also just trying to frame my, yeah. my categories well, within sex. If you look sex. at it, like the, like the figures we sexualize in Western media, like all the women are way too attractive. They always have cleavage. They're always like shown as love interests or sexual like accomplishments and advancements. And that totally translates into like the porn that we watch and the things that interest us. I'm just thinking of an example that counter that. Have you seen the first James Bond movie with Daniel Craig? The, his first James Bond movie? Yes, I have. Casino Royale. What I love about that one is the female love interest in that movie is it does not fit the standards you just put in front of me if you think about her she is masculinized she is very prickly she has a very prickly demeanor she does not show much cleavage unless it is for a she's putting on like a gimmick or like an outfit for a, something frankly she's the type of woman i would be really attracted to strong women who are confident sure of themselves and very intentional mm-hmm. and i think that i don't need to assert my ego in sex i don't need to dominate another person to give me the satisfaction of being in a position of power or validation. Okay. I, I think I have a confident enough sense of self that I'd rather utilize whatever I am to empower like, the people around me. I think that translates into sex and in that I want the woman I'm with to feel like sure of herself, confident and attractive because that like that, that turns me on. Like I find that. Well, I think it's what you use probably a great example because so you are a very confident man. You're confident. You're like even yeah. you're confident in like in like your phone and you're totally fine with how you are. That's why you can find women like the actress attractive because I remember when Casino Royale came out afterwards, a lot of people didn't like the the actress that they had cast because she wasn't the standard norm. She wasn't like big tits, you know, tall, blonde, etc. And maybe it's because a lot of men were, they're all self-conscious. They're not actually, they haven't developed those attributes that you have yet. And that's why they couldn't find Eva Green attractive. Yeah, I could write essays about why I'm attracted to stronger women. I think that the way our society is arranged is that people who take control of situations and who seize power are usually men. I think that because lots of men want that power or want to be seen as in control of something or a patriarchal figure of some sort, whether that's socialization or like like structures of patriarchy, but the truth is, is most men can't win. They can't be the head of the company. They can't be the most confident person in the room. They can't be the strongest. And so a great way to assert themselves as a man 
and as like like a stable structure that is in control of or at least guiding another figure the, the, the fastest way to do that is by dominating a woman and I think that that domination can be healthy because it gives them a sense of self and stability that they might not find in their life and their hobbies but it could be unhealthy because it leads to the objectification and demeaning of women because mm-hmm. just because you're dominating someone in sex doesn't make you a better person it doesn't mean you can dominate them in a relationship it doesn't mean you're superior to them they're just roles the roles we play to make the other person playing a role feel better in the same way that's what they're doing for us so, like, yeah, I could talk about it for ages and ages, but I think, like, I'm very confident, I'm very sure of myself, I've, I'm very much content in my ego, and so the idea of dominating someone just seems, like, weird and, and, mm-hmm. and, like, cruel to me, but the idea of someone being in control of me or guiding me isn't scary or intimidating, because I get to see them be happy, but I'm still content in myself and of my status. For me, that's actually quite refreshing to hear because I am a woman. I get the, I usually do get the short end of the stick when it comes to my sexual partners. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a relatively strong personality, I think. I am somewhat abrasive when I come off to men. However, in mo- most of my relationships, even though they were dating me, they still didn't appreciate my personality and that aspect of me. When we were in, being intimate, I would usually kind of hide that. I, I not, I'm not necessarily who likes to be dominated in bed. I do like a nice, good, you know, tug and pull, like trading off of powers. And I can't portray that necessarily because it would make the other person feel upset. And that's an issue because, sadly, we, we can assume that it's a misconception in relationships that women have to be more weak and that men are more dominant, but it's not actually a misconception. It's an issue right now that not enough people are confident in themselves. You're the black sheep in this example because you don't fit the stereotype, but most of the men I've encountered are like this, and I know that I'm not the only one. A lot of women have to deal with it as well. And it's either something that's going to keep happening or eventually more and more men will break out of this, especially in metropolitan areas like Seattle. I think it's something that will change. I think that like when we get things done, whether we're dancing or we're working on a project or we're having sex, when we sit down to do a task, we need someone to be really observant of how everyone's feeling and what's going on and what things mean. And then we need someone dedicated to like making sure things happen, structuring it, and making everyone feel safe and like stable. And the idea that the stable person always has to be the man, that the caring person always has to be a woman, is hurtful. Like I think, I think it's detrimental to our perspectives because what, what it really is is if it's two women and, or, or two men or a man and a woman, but the woman is more dominant um, and, and the man is more submissive, whether that's in the relationship or just the, the, the sexual encounter, I think that we are constantly switching roles because we are more complex than we're always submissive or we're always dominant. And I think that if we get more comfortable in the roles we play, not just with our sexual partners, but like in our business or in our family interactions, just realizing, should I be the person who's caring about why we're doing things? Or should I be the person focused on how we're getting things done? Or is this a partnership? I think figuring out the role that you have gives you more freedom to find out what you can do. So Darren, if you can give um, young men today a piece of advice or just something that you'd like to fix, what's one, one small thing that you would do? If I could say anything to any young man who's discovering his sexuality or even discovering himself, I would say there's no shame. There's no shame in anything you think, in anything you feel, because there, you did not choose to be born as who you are, when you are, where you are, and you did not choose to get exposed to the things that, that life just threw at you. Whoever you are is who you get to be, and there should be no shame or insecurity about any of it, because your job is to figure out who you are 
not to create what you are. I think that is going to be very poignant for any young freshmen who are listening or sophomores, seniors. Growing really never ends. This has been Pillow Talk with Christine McManigal and Zachary Bonser. Christine, any last questions for our guest? I think that's just about it. If you would like to hear a certain topic or have some points for us, please email us at podcast at dailyudub.com. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Darian, for coming on. Yeah, I had a blast. Thank you. Ever wondered what drunk food is like in other places? My name is Dee Dee Madigan, host of the weekly podcast Home Plates, where I ask that question and many more. Each week, an international student joins me here in the studio to discuss their food culture. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday right here on the Soundbite Network. For more like this and other great shows covering sports, science, relationships, and the arts, visit the Soundbites website, uwpodcast.com. That's uwpodcast.com.